semi-trucks don't stop on a dime. Please be very aware of your surroundings. Um, be very cautious because you don't know what the person in front of you is going to do. Long-time Overdrive readers are probably aware of the Trucking Solutions Group, a tight-knit group of owner-ops who came together originally more than a decade ago to share ideas toward business improvement. As time has gone on, the group has grown to 14 members today. Find all of them via truckingsolutiongroup.com. I'm Todd Dills, and the reason I bring them up is that today on Overdrive Radio, they've been kind enough to allow us to rebroadcast much of their recent accident awareness conference call, which was held a week and a half ago. It was intended as something of an outreach event to not only uh, professional truckers, but anyone who touches a seatbelt, says independent owner-operator Vince Crisanti. With fellow TSG member Shane Rizzuto hauling boats in a leased operation, independent Crisanti uh, provided the initial inspiration for the call. While Overdrive has recently covered some of the legal particulars on post-accident procedures in our uh, trucking law series, the TSG call was less narrowly focused, broadly touching on an array of areas from just what to do in the event of an accident, whether you're the first or last to come upon an emergency on the highway, to how to cope personally if you're involved in one yourself and help others through similar events. It also featured the voice you heard at the top, that of Monica Stevens, recently widowed when her boat boat hauling husband was hit head-on by a motorist making a reckless pass. You'll hear more from her, including a tale of reunification with her husband's ride-along dog toward the end of the podcast. Both owner-operator Crisanti and uh, Rizzuto have seen the worst themselves, accidents that held quite a long legacy in both of their lives. Here's Vince Crisanti telling a bit of his own story by way of explaining his passion for the topic at hand. Um, so I'm an owner-operator with my own authority. I started trucking sure. back in uh, in about 2000. I had uh, I almost came into trucking by accident in in a way. Um, I backpacked Europe, came over to the U.S. and hadn't seen the U.S. So I decided to get into trucking to see it and get paid for it. Um, <laughs> okay. I started putting myself through school, and I got married. Um, in the meantime, and I was going to school, um, and then I was involved in an accident. Oh, wow. Um, it, it was an accident with a drunk driver while I was driving the truck, and I had a had a helper with me, and he was in the sleeper berth. He lived for seven years after the accident, but he died uh, pretty much due to the injuries during the accident. Wow. The truck landed on its side and, and crushed his pelvis. and um, he just had, he had thousands and thousands almost of surgeries. So right. what doesn't kill you, I guess, makes you stronger. Ever since then, I kind of have been stuck in my little bubble as a truck, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, I didn't go back to school. I just stayed in uh, in the truck after that. I've done a couple other things, but that's, that's how I, uh, that's where my passion, I guess, for safety comes in is because I've seen it, so... Shane Rizzuto, too, had his own crash experience some years ago when he was hauling locally. Turns out, his involvement in setting up the TSG call and turning it into a pow- the powerful experience I know it ended up being for many 
dovetails with the recent story of a friend from those local aggregate hauling days. Here's Shane. I own my own truck and trailer. It's a specialized trailer to haul boats. And I haul boats. Okay. Uh, but are you, are you running you know, with, with your authority? No, I am leased to a carrier. Uh, Vince had mentioned he was talking to um, some first responders and was wanting to put some sort of a call together and that he was looking for a state trooper and I knew a state trooper. Um, but kind of went together like that. That's how I, that's how I recall it going uh, at first. And, you know, Vince kind of came up with the idea and then I is you know, kind of in the, in the search for some more people to add to it. And I, you know, I said I knew a state trooper. And then it was in a later call that uh, I'd had a friend that uh, from high school that also drove uh, local. We, we drove aggregate, uh, meaning rock and sand and dirt, mm -hmm. uh, local. Uh, he drove for a different outfit than me. Um, he remembered me having that accident, and he actually just had an accident a few months ago. Uh, and uh, it was a fatality accident. And he was having a really hard time struggling with it. So I just happened to mention to Vince that uh, – he called me and I kind of, he just wanted to know how, how I felt at the time and if the feeling ever goes away and what I did to get rid of it. And I kind of described what I described on the call. Vince asked me to describe what I was talking about. And so I, I did. And, and he's like, wow, that's exactly what uh, needs to go on the call. Uh, I want to add your story right. to it if we can. Um, and yeah. it just kind of grew from there. And, I think that's kind of when everything started snowballing, uh, coming together. Safety is so often, as Vince says, quote, what doesn't happen. It is usually not exciting, and no one claps when you make it home at night, end quote. Those practicing safety fully are engaged in what, for stats purposes, are a series of non-events. Unfortunately, as you'll hear Vince put it, quote, Safety stats are measured by unsafe events. End quote. Featured here are three first responders of various types. Derek Olson of Lafayette, Colorado, a firefighter. A water rescue volunteer based in New York named Jim. And a state trooper named Chad. All of whom have repeatedly seen the results of tragedy when it happens on the roadway. Here's Vince Crisanti setting things up. This call is intended to help you in your daily lives make educated and informed decisions. This is intended to work in two parts. The first is per, for prevention. The second is for therapy. This call is for anyone that does not want to get into an accident and anyone that has been in an accident. Anyone that touches a seatbelt. Everything happens for three reasons. First, your decisions. Second, other people's decisions. And third, nature. The sun will rise, the sun will set, rain will fall, and ice will form. You need to make good decisions and influence others to make good decisions. I firmly believe that, all, that most accidents are preventable in some way, shape, or form. I also believe that all bad attitudes are preventable. We will talk to three people today to deal with accidents and two people on how they are dealing with it. You will take away from this a greater understanding of what to do if you're involved in an accident or come upon an accident, and you will get to see the accident from someone holding the steering wheel when someone else made a fatal mistake. 
You will also hear from someone who received a phone call while they were home about a loved one. Please remember, safety is what doesn't happen. It is usually unexciting. No one claps when you make it home at night. It is an unevent. Unfortunately, all safety stats are measured by unsafe events. First, you get to hear from three modern-day superheroes. They each have hidden wrinkle-proof capes, but they are truly saving lives and fighting crime. Derek is a professional superhero. He has been a professional firefighter for 17 years. Not only is he exceptional at what he does, but he is a battalion chief, which means he leads professional superheroes. He is highly skilled and trained in strategic decision-making and incident management. Derek, what do we do when we're in an accident? Well, first and foremost, if you're in an accident, try to remain calm. Um, that's certainly easier said than done. Um, but when an event like that happens, you're going to have an adrenaline spike. Your heart rate is going to increase, and it's going to affect your uh, decision-making uh, capacity. So first and foremost, call 911. That's something that oftentimes can be forgotten about in the heat of the moment when uh, uh, you're having a very emotional event, a very traumatic event. Um, but the sooner you call 911, uh, the sooner that we can get resources come in and get help on the way. So don't forget that. Don't assume that somebody else is going to do it. Call yourself. Um, and if you can, give clear information to the 911 dispatcher. Um, our dispatchers for police, fire, EMS, um, are very busy call centers. Um, oftentimes the dispatcher is receiving and handling calls and dispatching units out at the same time, so they're, they are uh, multitasking. They do a lot of things at once. So if you can give clear information right up front to the dispatcher, uh, that's going to be extremely helpful to getting resources early and getting the right resources coming. Dispatch oftentimes is going to ask a lot of questions. Give them your attention. Give them your focus and give them good information. If possible, get out and check on other people um, if you're uninjured, obviously. If you're going to be injured and you're incapacitated, there's not much you're going to be able to do. But if not, go check on other people. Get the number of people that are injured, or injured if you can. Uh, incidents can quickly deplete single agency resource capabilities, uh, especially in remote locations. Uh, fire departments may be quite a ways uh, apart, and it may take a long time for resources to respond to your location. So the better information you can get and the quicker information you can get to dispatch, uh, the sooner we can get those resources responding. So good information helps responders get appropriate or additional resources to the incident sooner. Um, think of a large pileup accident on the interstate um, and a single um, agency only has one ambulance and you have multiple, multiple people hurt. That next due ambulance may be coming from a lot further out. So getting information like how many people are injured can certainly make a huge impact on the incident. Um, if you're in your vehicle, turn your hazards on or move the accident from traffic if it's minor and possible. Um, shut your engines off and place it in park. Um, this, is a, this is a big uh, hazard for us as responders on scene, especially with the um, new hybrid vehicles coming out. Oftentimes uh, you can stand by a vehicle and uh, the the, it is ready to go, basically, and it, it can be in drive, and you can be standing by it, and you won't hear anything running like a typical gas motor engine. Um, those can be a significant hazard for us on scene. So 
shut off your engine and put it in park. Oftentimes, people forget to do simple things like that because they're affected by the uh, the incident and they're not they're not thinking clearly. Um, don't hang around the accident scene is the other thing. Um, don't just be a bystander um, if you can can help that. If you're there to help, great, especially in the the early stages of an accident. But don't just hang around. Um, that can really overcomplicate incidents. Um, if we do have a significant incident that requires extrication, which is a technical process of essentially removing the vehicle around patients, that can be a very lengthy process, and it's a very technical process, and that requires a lot of space for us to operate and room for incoming or additional units. So if we actually have people hanging around the incident scene that don't really need to be there, uh, we're really delaying care to the patients that need it. So kind of remember that, and that's why I ask for people if they can, if they can move their vehicles and sort of block and prevent any further damage to the accident scene, that would be great. But the biggest key is, is, is uh, you know, don't become uh, an issue yourself. So help us out in that regard and understand that we do have a lot of units responding oftentimes to, to big incidents, and we do need the room to operate. If you're carrying dangerous goods or hazardous materials, um, make sure that's identified. If you can uh, relay that information to dispatch when you call 911, that's very helpful for us um, because that's an entire separate animal there, and uh, we require some specialized units, especially on uh, the, the interstate where there's dangerous goods going up and down the interstate all the time. Um, being able to identify that stuff early can help us do our job. Um, and, and help prevent uh, incidents from becoming worse. So communicate their presence. If you have shipping papers, display those on scene. Um, make sure that we are aware of any hazardous materials. That's, uh, that's going to be critical for us. So um, if you're involved in an accident, though, if you uh, following an accident, you don't feel like you have any injury, you feel like you're feeling okay, you feel all right, um, my advice, my best idea, my best suggestion is still to be evaluated by a medical uh, professional, a physician, um, preferably an emergency department. The reason I say that is you can suffer internal injuries such as traumatic aortic aneurysms or ruptures following accident, and I've actually seen it myself um, where people have had an aneurysm and on scene, they, they feel fine, they decline any medical service, um, and that aneurysm actually ruptures within 24 hours, and there's absolutely nothing that can be done. I've had, had people perish within 24 hours of an accident who felt fine while they were on scene. Um, so just based on the mechanism of injury, um, it's, a, it's a very good idea to get evaluated following an accident, even if you feel fine. What should you do if you come, upon, uh, come across an accident? Um, that, uh, that's, that's definitely... Uh, First thing that you, again, is remain calm. Uh, that can be certainly difficult to do. These are emotionally charged incidents. Um, unless you've really had repeated exposure to these types of incidents, it's going to be very difficult. Um, call 911, again, there's a thing called the bystander's effect where um, it's a social psychological phenomenon in which Individuals are much less likely to offer to help to a victim when other people are present. So the greater number of bystanders, the less likely that one of them will help. So you pull up on an accident and there's already people there, you, a lot of times the assumption is, is somebody has already called 911. So even if that's the case, when you pull up, go ahead and call 911. Worst case scenario, dispatch is going to tell you, 
We are aware of that accident. Thank you for calling in. We have units en route. Um, however, it doesn't do any good if everybody assumes somebody has already called 911. So please, I can't emphasize that enough, is get help coming, uh, get them coming early. Uh, again, gather information extent of injuries. Um, and I'm going to emphasize one thing to everybody is um, the location of the incident. That's going to be critical to getting responders coming to the right location. Um, there's been many, many, many times it happens every day where we get dispatched out to a call to an incident and the RP, the reporting party, does not know exactly where the incident occurred or they passed it four miles back um, or they think it's in this location. If you can, take a second, identify where you're at, and report a good location to the dispatcher. Something like a crossroad, a mile marker, address is the best, but whatever you can provide to dispatch will be extremely helpful. Um, provide a safe haven in inclement weather or dangerous areas uh, to people involved in the accident if you can. Um, just whatever you do, don't make the situation worse. Uh, try to exercise good judgment. And again, you know, you, you're going to be in these high-stress situations where you're not going to know exactly what to do. So stop, take a minute, take a breath, and uh, formulate a good plan of what to do. Just don't make a situation worse. Uh, sometimes when too many people stop to help, it can certainly overcomplicate the incident scene and add uh, complexity, causing delays in getting those help that really truly need it. So it kind of goes back to the, uh, the bystanders. If you don't really need to be there, then please move on. If there's something that you can do to help, um, then by all means, help out what you can, help out where you can. But if responders are already on scene, please, 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 please don't ask, is there anything we can do? Is there anything we can do? Um, if we're already on scene, more than likely we have the situation under control. And at that point, more people are just adding complexity to the incident. One of the most important things you can do, though, is people are already on scene, as far as responders, slow down. I'm sure everybody has heard that time and time again of slow down and move over. But I really, truly cannot overemphasize that enough. Um, of This is one of the most dangerous parts of our jobs, is being down out on a roadway and motorists speeding by it. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've almost been struck by a vehicle. Um, and you really don't have a good sense of how fast a vehicle is moving until you're standing two feet from one. Um, 40 miles an hour passing the accident scene may not feel like you're going very fast, but when you're within inches of a vehicle, it's extremely fast. So slow down and move over. Be patient with us, please. Um, think about the responders. Think about the other people on scene. Just slow down and move over. Take a second for us. That's that would be a, a huge thing. There's been so many people killed on the roadside simply because of that, and it's so preventable. Um, what have I seen? It's not really something that I indulge in speaking about, um, but I've seen anything you could probably imagine. Um, I've seen a person pour gas on themselves and light themselves on fire in a parking lot in front of children and families present, and the psychological effect that that's had on bystanders afterwards. I've seen partial ejection rollovers where um, I've had a four-year-old asking me where their mother's face was following an accident because she was obviously deceased in the accident and partially ejected from the vehicle. Uh, I've seen major accidents where I've basically had to decide who is savable and who's salvage salvageable based upon critical triage of patients, condition, and 
limited resources of a lengthy education process. So that kind of boils back to my, my prior point of getting good information to dispatch as we can get the right resources. If we have more resources on scene, then maybe that makes an ultimate difference in, in the outcome of any call. And lastly, what do I not want to see? Um, you know, I don't want to see anyone I work with get hurt or killed in the line of duty, especially under my command or due to my own lack of situational awareness or order given. Uh, I also never want to respond to an incident my family or friends are involved in. Um, this is certainly every first responder's worst fear. Uh, and, and lastly, I, I hope this information has been beneficial to folks listening. As much as I don't want to respond to any incident involving my family, I don't want to respond to an incident involving anyone that is hurt or killed if it could have been prevented in the first place. Derek, thank you very much. Our nation has been ravaged by torrential rains and flooding. The water that can be tamed and controlled through our kitchen sinks has left its mark across the U.S. This year, levees and dams have broken, interstates damaged and shut down, and towns in our heartland, like Percival, Iowa, nearly removed from the map. Jim has over 16 years of experience dealing with nature's forces in volunteer technical rescue. He's part of a Swiftwater rescue team. He is a master dive instructor. He dives through and under the ice to extreme depths and in fast current. But he also has a day job in an office. So he truly is a modern day Clark Kent. When his pager calls, he changes his clothes, ready to rescue or recover if necessary. Jim, what do we do when we're involved in an incident? I'm going to start out talking a little bit about our team to give you perspective of what we do. I'm the captain of my county's technical rescue team in upstate New York. We are a 100% volunteer team run by our county's Office of Emergency Services. We work with local, county, and state law enforcement, as well as all fire departments and ambulance services that are in our area. Our team is charged with performing high-angle rescue as well as water rescue and recoveries for our county and the surrounding counties. For our purposes, high-angle rescue is loosely defined uh, as the rescue of a patient that is over a cliff or an embankment where technical rope skills and equipment are required to safely move that patient. The skills required for high-angle rescue move nicely into water rescue as we may need to build rope systems to perform rescues in and above fast-moving water. Today I'll talk about the other half of our responsibility, which is water rescue and recovery. Our team is deployed to all water-related calls, including missing persons and evidence searches, bridge jumpers, people or animals who have fallen through the ice, vehicles in the water, and flood and swift water rescue. Uh, specifically for this call, I'm going to focus on vehicles and water. Our area has had the unfortunate experience of dealing with several widespread floods and swift water events over the last 13 years or so. Hundreds of homes and businesses in lower-lying areas uh, have been turned into green space because they were inundated with water more than once. During the 2006 floods, you may have seen video of our area on CNN where a house travels down the river and into a bridge. My team and several others were evacuating residents about 100 yards from that structure when the building next door would exploded and knocked the house off its foundation into the river. With these events always come traffic. Depending on how fast the storm approaches, how much notice we have to evacuate, and what time things start to happen, people could be headed home from work or trying to get to higher ground in the middle of the night. 
This brings us to the dangers of driving in these conditions. The first is that you don't know what's under the water. The water's never clear. It's always murky and muddy. You can't see two or three inches through it. I've worked in rising water conditions where steel manhole covers start vibrating in the street and then get blown out um, of place due to, to rising water. A typical manhole cover is about two feet in diameter and weighs a couple of hundred pounds. Once the water comes up a few more inches, you can't see that two-foot diameter vehicle stopping hole in the middle of the road. And if you pay attention, there are a lot of manhole covers in a typical road. So that's a lot of hazards that you'll be driving through. This extends to areas where the, water where the road crosses water, whether it be a simple culvert or bridge that crosses a creek or river. Once the water covers the road surface, do you know if the road surface is even still there? Is the structure still strong enough to carry the weight of your vehicle? Could there be something on the bridge, large branch, or other debris under the water that's going to stop your vehicle, probably in the most dangerous place to be in a flood? Which brings us on to moving water. It takes only a few inches of moving water to affect a typical vehicle. Once the water starts to float the vehicle, it will only stop if it's fully submerged or hung up on debris. Either way, it's not a good situation to be in. So what should you do if you find yourself in a vehicle in the water? You have a few priorities. Get everyone's seatbelt off, especially children in car seats. I have kids, and I know all about the complicated straight jacket that we put them in to protect them in the crash. Next, get all the windows down before your power windows stop working. As the water rises around the car, it will become buoyant, and it will begin to float. You want to call 911 as quickly as you can. Uh, remember that water entering the vehicle will make it heavier and keep it in place. If you think it's safe to remain in the vehicle, do so and again call 911. Give the dispatcher as good a description of your location as possible. Maybe the, the cross streets, maybe it's the river you're crossing, the last sign you've seen, the, whatever you can do to get them to your location. If the water's not moving or is moving very slowly, it may be safer for you to walk or swim to safety than it is to stay in the vehicle with rising water. Again, you want to call 911 and tell them your intentions that you're walking away from the vehicle. If you can't safely leave the vehicle, before the water reaches your windows, climb onto the roof and stay there. The best option is to not enter water at all. You're probably driving through water because you don't want to backtrack to another road that will get you where you're going. The responders are going to be dealing with the same problems. We don't have super vehicles that can afford four feet of water. It may take us an hour or more to travel to a location that would normally take 10 minutes. And you may be number 8, 9, 10, or later on our list of rescues. There's only so much manpower to go, to go around. Remember the saying, don't drown, turn around. If you come upon a vehicle that's in the water, obviously the first thing you should do is call 911 give a description of, of, of the location. If you think you can safely help, you can do so, but keep in mind your first priority should be your own safety. We don't want to add more victims to, to uh, the problem we already have going on. So take this from someone who has seen a lot. The dangers are real and the power of moving water is relentless. You can't see what's going on under the water. Please be safe and attentive while on the road. Chad is a state trooper. He's dedicating his life for greater good to keep us out of harm's way. His whole goal when he wakes up in the morning is to keep us safe. He has a great amount of experience and specialty investigating crashes. 
Chad has a passion for keeping our highways safe and reducing the number of crashes. Chad is also involved and passionate about educating the public in safety and understanding law enforcement's role in society. Chad, what do we do when we're in an accident? I'm really glad that I'm able to share with you today. And so from my perspective, what should you do if you're involved in a crash? You'll notice that I'm not calling it an accident. Um, very few crashes are accidents, uh, true accidents. Most of them are preventable. So I just had to throw my two cents in there first. <laughs> um, I would say, first of all, like others have said, I would say stay calm. Um, take some deep breaths. Take a minute. Get your heart to slow down a little bit. Uh, it's a fact that when your heart is pumping really hard that you can actually uh, get very narrow vision. You can uh, not hear things. There are, thing, there are actual physical things that happen to you. So take a minute. Take some really deep breaths. Try and get yourself to calm down a little bit. Look around from where you're at. Just take a second to look around. Take in your surroundings. Try to start thinking a little more clearly. Then once you've done that, check to see how everyone involved is doing. Start in your own vehicle. Look in, you know, if you have passengers, check yourself. A lot of times we forget to, uh, to look at yourself and see if what your injuries might be or, or how you are. It's even known that's happened multiple times where you have a pretty serious uh, laceration, a cut or something, and it's not even bleeding yet because of the adrenaline that's pumping. So look at yourself, look at the others in your vehicle. If there are passengers, help them first. And then if you're able to, check on the other individuals and other vehicles. So that would, that would be what I would say uh, is, is first and highest priority. Then, you know, be a really good witness yourself. Um, you're involved in the crash, but you need to be a good witness, meaning, again, look around. Look at the details. What vehicles were involved? Where are you at? Those types of things. Um, check on the other driver. You know, look and see. Pay attention who the other driver was. It happens many times. I come upon a crash, and, you know, people are lying, and they're saying they weren't the driver because maybe they didn't have a driver's license or it's been revoked. So, you, if you're involved in a crash, be that good witness. Look, pay attention to who the other driver was. What are they wearing? Um, even go over there if you're capable and you know, get close enough that you, you can tell if they were impaired or not. That might be really useful information, depending on how long it's going to take uh, responders to get there. Uh, like it's been said, make sure 911 has been called. Too many times people assume it's been called and it hasn't. Be ready to give those details about the crash location. Um, I recommend to a lot of people, most people don't pay attention to the mileposts as you're driving. It's a really, really good habit to watch those mileposts. Just have a good idea of where you're at to be able to give a good location where the crash happened. How many vehicles were involved? Are there injuries? How many, how bad are the injuries? Is the roadway blocked? These are all things that uh, dispatch and, and the first responders, especially us as troopers and police, that we're going to want to know uh, as we're on our way to the crash. Is your vehicle on the roadway? Um, can it be moved? Uh, should it be moved? The only time that really a vehicle should not be moved, especially if there's traffic, is if there is a fatality of any type involved. Um, you know, God forbid that you're involved in a crash like that, but if there is a fatality from any of the people involved in the crash, don't move anything. Um, you actually should help protect the scene 
so that the investigating officer can uh, keep things as close to the way they were as, as possible. Um, look around again, see if maybe someone should be warning oncoming traffic. Is there a, you know, is the crash near a blind hill or a blind curve? Um, could we prevent secondary crashes? A lot of secondary crashes happen. Um, sometimes they're not preventable, but that's something to be aware of if you've been involved in a crash. Look at where the crash is at. Maybe somebody or yourself can go and, and warn people that are coming upon the crash so that hopefully we don't have uh, secondary crashes that happen. I already said it a little bit, but the evidence that is there, meaning pieces of lights, headlights, taillights, pieces of the vehicles themselves, that kind of stuff where it's laying on the roadway can be extremely important when the uh, investigating officer is arriving. That will tell us or help tell us where the crash happened, the point of impact happened, uh, where the vehicles then went after that or before. There's a lot that we can tell from that evidence. And a lot of people like, or they, they, it's kind of a tendency to just go out there and get the roadway clear so we remove all of that evidence from the roadway. So don't move that evidence unless it's necessary. Uh, especially if there are serious injuries, like I said, um, including a fatality, but even serious injuries, don't move any of that evidence. That's going to be very, very important uh, to capture with uh, a camera and you know, for that investigating officer to see. So second question, what should you do if you come upon a crash? Uh, I'd say the first and most important thing is, as a bystander, do you stop or do you not stop? Uh, if you're a witness, you really, you better stop. Do not keep going if you have witnessed the crash. Uh, if you did not witness the crash, does it seem like the crash just happened? Or maybe it happened, you know, a little bit ago. You, you know, look around, look at the evidence. Usually it's obvious if the crash has happened just recently or it just happened. And are there any first responders on scene yet? I would say if there are first responders on scene, if it seems like things are being taken care of, the best thing that you can do is keep going. Um, pay attention to your own driving, drive safe, and keep going. Don't, don't cause traffic to be worse or, again, possibly cause a secondary crash. If, uh, well, I'm going to stick on that for just a second. The slow down and move over thing. Um, please, please, please slow down to a safe speed, move over if you're able to. Uh, if there's an, an open lane, move over to that lane. Allow some space in between the crash scene and yourself. If there isn't a lane available, if it's an oncoming lane but there's no oncoming traffic, still move over. Get away from that crash scene if you can. If you can't, slow down to a very safe speed. Uh, too many people are hit during a, a crash scene. Again, make sure 911's been called. If you've come upon a crash scene, don't assume that it's been called. So call again. Um, make sure, hopefully you know your location, where the crash has happened. If you, uh, you know, look around at the details, how many vehicles, I, I know I've already said it, it applies to you as well if you've come upon a crash. Look at all those things. You know, be able to give all those details to the dispatcher when you call 911. You might be, some of the crashes happen in an area where there's really bad cell signal. So you, it might be you that needs to drive to a loco location where there is better cell signal so that you can be the one that makes that call. So these are all things to be aware of.
if you are a witness, if you saw the crash happen, you really, you must stay on scene. I can't emphasize that enough. You need to at least stay on scene until you give your contact information to the investigating officer. A lot of people don't know this, but you can be charged if you witnessed a crash and you continue on if there are injuries involved. There are charges that we can charge people with for that. So even if you weren't involved in the crash, if you witnessed it and you continue on and there were injuries in that crash, you can be charged yourself. So the third question, what have I personally seen? Uh, What don't I want to see? I've kind of touched on it. You might have picked up on it. Uh, Too many people are interested in what's happening with the crash and not focusing on safety in general or even possibly helping, stopping help people that are involved in the crash and just rubbernecking. Uh, I think that's a a really huge problem that we have out there. Please um, help or don't help and continue on. If there's enough help already happening, pay attention to your own, your own safety, your own driving and and continue, continue on. So you're not causing a traffic issue or, or possibly another crash. Something else that I see way too much uh, seatbelts. Way too many people are rejected. More than half of the fatalities that are, Car crashes are simply because they didn't have their seatbelt on. I know there's a lot of arguments about not wearing their seatbelt, but it's a simple thing, um, and the vehicles are designed for their with their safety involved because the person is wearing their seatbelt. So please wear your seatbelts. Um, and most importantly, in my opinion, many, many, too many cops and tow truck drivers, even CEDA or you know, Department of uh, Transportation workers, they're hit and killed on the side of the road, uh, either in a cra- or with a crash scene or just because they're on the side of the road working, whatever it might be. There's distracted driving or people are actually driving toward the lights, whatever it might be. Please be careful. Slow down. Move over. Um, more cops are killed on the side of the road by being hit than are cops that are shot. That's a fact. So please pay attention. So above all, um, drive safe and take care of each other out there. The remainder of the TSG call was devoted to the experience of those who've been involved in fatal crashes, who've dealt with the sense of irrevocable loss that can can accompany them when a human life is lost. And that's the case for any party in the accident, as owner-operator Shane Rizzuto spells out in the story that follows from a time when he was hauling locally, as intimated at the top of the podcast. Here's Vince introducing him. Many times you hear somebody start a conversation with, I know a guy. Well, today you get to know a guy that was holding the steering wheel when someone else made a fatal mistake. He also served as a volunteer firefighter, so he's been on both sides of an incident, as a first responder and as a professional driver. He'll tell you about the accident and how he handled it. Shane, can you tell us about the accident? So my story starts out, uh, I'd like to first say that I am a truck driver and I was driving a truck at the time. I was driving local. I was stopped at a stoplight, taking a left-hand turn. I, uh, the light turned green. I made a left-hand turn, and there was a slight rise in the road that I had to overcome, and I was loaded. It, uh, just after the rise in the road, there was a cross street that was trying to cross three lanes of traffic going one direction, and they, uh, the lane, the road coming out, and the people that were coming out were trying to make a left-hand turn and go the opposite direction that I was into the other three lanes of traffic. 
they had to cross at least three lanes of traffic to get over to the other side of the road going the opposite direction. I just crested the top of the hill and saw two cars sitting at the stop sign to my right. That was in the right lane. And the pickup truck that was sitting at the stop sign decided to go, and he was too close. So I was already hitting my brakes because he was too close. The car behind him didn't even stop. She just followed him right out. I saw out of the corner of my eye, because I was already that close to the intersection, I couldn't even see that she had gone. Out of the corner of my eye, uh, it was a red car. I saw that she had gone. I said, no, she didn't. And, again, I was already on my brakes with everything I could do. And I, I hit her square in the center of the car on the driver's side. I was able to get it to a stop. I uh, immediately set my brakes and grabbed my phone and dialed 911. I was, I was actually the first uh, person to call 911. Um, I jumped out of my truck as they answered, and telling them what had just happened. As I walked around in front of the truck, I already knew that she had deceased. And I told the uh, dispatcher that. At that point, they were trying to ask me where I was at, what direction I was going. And this goes back to what everybody's already said, to take a deep breath and calm down because I lost it all. I, I didn't know which direction I was heading. I gave them a wrong direction. I was completely turned around. Um, it happened right in front of a, a large a Honda dealership, and it was just starting to rain. In fact, it just started to rain as the accident happened. The roads were not wet yet. Therefore, all of the salesmen were standing at the front of the dealership looking out the window when it happened, and they saw the whole thing. They came running out until they saw it. Um, there were vehicles that were going the other direction that stopped and said they had saw it. I had plenty of witnesses there to help cover my story when the, when the police did arrive. I somewhere between 30 and 35 miles an hour. Like I said, there was a slight rise in the road, and I was loaded. I think during the accident investigation, they, they did determine I was probably doing uh, 35, if I remember correct. This was quite a few years ago. So at that slow of a speed, I killed somebody instantly. I didn't think that that could happen. Uh, you know, 35 miles an hour isn't that fast. Um, let's see, at the scene, um, I called my wife, and, of course, she uh, was uh, freaking out. Um, the police arrived, and they, uh, they completely shut the road down and started their long investigation. Uh, I think after I left the scene, uh, DOT showed up and did a full level one inspection on my truck. The trailer. Uh, I was asked by the uh, police on scene to submit to a, uh, a blood draw for uh, drug and alcohol testing, uh, and they said it would be in my best interest to cover myself for any future lawsuits, and of course I absolutely agreed. Uh, so I actually left the scene of the accident in a police car to go to the hospital and have my blood drawn. Um, the, the truck was drivable. Uh, in fact, a, a co-worker drove the truck back to our yard. Uh, the car was towed. Uh, I, was, I was halfway through her car. 
she was laying in the passenger side of the car in her in the driver's seat. Uh, so her car was towed. Um, even though I knew that she was dead, uh, when they did finally tell me before I left the scene, uh, it hit me pretty hard. Even though I, I, I mean, I just looked at her and I knew she was dead. But when they actually told me and confirmed it, it, it hit me pretty hard. Um, afterwards, the aftermath. So I actually went the next day and uh, drove my truck in the yard and dumped my load. I was hauling, uh, I was hauling aggregate, and it needed to be dumped so that the truck could get to the body shop. So I actually went and got in the truck the next day and drove it and dumped, dumped the load. Um, it was pretty difficult. I did take the next week off and got into another semi. Uh, mine was at the body shop. It was a truck unfamiliar to me. And I had to, my very first load was loading and uh, driving into a uh, into the capital city, a uh, very large metropolitan area. I couldn't handle it. Everybody jumping on the interstate, jumping in front of me. Uh, I finally got to where I was going and dumped my load and went back home and parked the truck. I couldn't do it. From that point on, I just so happened I already had another job when all this happened. I was trying to get to, into a different career. At the time, uh, I'd already had a job, and it was on my two-week notice already. Uh, so for the remainder of my time with that company, I drove a tandem truck that, uh, and stayed a little more local just to make it easier on myself. Um, the car was towed to an impound lot for the city, and the impound lot was it would not accessible, but there was an alleyway that you could drive behind some businesses to see inside the impound lot. And they actually parked her car right along that fence line. And I drove by it very often and, uh, and just looked at it. Uh, I don't remember how often I did it, uh, but uh, for the longest time, it, it was there for a very long time and I would drive by and look at it. I don't know if that helps or not. The, the way I felt during the, the going on uh, following the accident, it just, I had a very large event interrupt my life, and it felt like the world should stop. Everything to me was moving in slow motion, and it felt like everybody else should stop and, and experience what I was going through, and it didn't. Life went on for everybody else. So to me, it felt like the world was spinning faster than everything else around me for the longest time. Um, I didn't do any grief counseling. I just worked through it myself. It doesn't bother me at all today. Uh, I just, I, I don't know what the terms would be called because I'm not a grief counselor, but I just, life went on and it finally, I finally just came to terms with it and everything went back to normal. It just took time. In conversation later on with me, both Shane Rizzuto and Vince Crisanti had more to say about the various means of coping that exist, or about a fundamental aspect of it, ultimately, that I might characterize as simply going out of your way to engage with those you love and talk about what you're going through. It's a big part of uh, 
way the way both got through with time that phenomenon that Rizzuto describes as the world going on spinning around you while you're stuck in a state of what feels like suspended animation of sorts Rizzuto described his own past work as a volunteer firefighter where he built what Vince ultimately called an emotional muscle that he has been using all of his life and the first responders have been doing it you had to do it if you've ever been in that like life-changing event so I don't know how to exercise and build up that emotional muscle for right. other people but th that's what it almost seems like you need and you know it's the first responders are superheroes because they deal with that they're saving lives and then they turn around and just it's a man of steel and velvet hands a guy can do something like that have you know hands of steel and then hands of velvet to take care of a kid at the very next second so that's just amazing and impressive on the conference call, Shane Rizzuto returned to the aftermath of his accident and evidence documentation with police there. He used that evidence as a way to cope of a fashion, as you'll hear. We didn't have, this was the back of the day before uh, cell phones had cameras on them, and so nobody had a camera. So I actually went to the investigating officer and called him and asked for pictures of the accident scene because nobody, we didn't have any pictures of it. And that was, again, it was an event that, that interrupted my life, and I wanted to, with something I wanted to see scenes from the accident uh, he thought that was kind of odd so I actually paid for the pictures and unfortunately you can't get uh, can't just get pictures of the accident scene they have to do the whole the full roll of whatever your pictures were on so I, I actually received pictures of uh, her in the vehicle uh, which I thought was a little disturbing I, I still have them today I I don't look at them all that much, but it, like again, it doesn't bother me. But I do have full, all the pictures of the accident scene. It, uh, like I say, it, it, life just goes on, and I got over it, and yeah, I'm back out here on the road to own my own truck and trailer and, and driving over the road, earning a living. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, like to say, drive safe, and, and above all, drive defensively. Thank you, Shane. Now you get to hear from a, a brave and courageous woman, and she's talking today to help you. Imagine if we could prevent what she has gone through. So, Monica, can I ask you who yes. Harry was? Harry was a very good guy. He took care of me and his family. Um, he would give the shirt off his back if he could to help you. He was just an all-around loving person. What did he do for a living? Uh, we owned a semi-truck, and he worked for CMT um, hauling boats. Harry Pierce was a colleague and friend of fellow boat hauling owner-operator Shane Rizzuto, his invol whose involvement in his and his wife's story brought Monica Stevens to the call to share her experience in the wake of a tragedy. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Um, he picked up boats in Kansas. Um, there was a gentleman that was driving erratically, from what I understand from the police report. And he went to this gentleman, decided to pass a semi-truck, and Harry was right there, and he hit him at 90 miles an hour. 
And Harry died instantly, and so did the gentleman. Harry's uh, boss, um, through CMT, they called him because the truck said CMT, and he had the coroner here where I live in Wyoming come tell me to my house, that he came to my house to tell me that my husband had passed. Can I ask how long it took to get your husband back home for services? Two months. From the time of the accident, it took two months. Yeah, because um, he had to go to a forensic, um, what am I thinking of, a corner, forensic corner in Kansas City, Kansas. And can I ask how you're dealing with the loss and, you know, the tasks around the house? Somebody else would be Um, changing the oil. Right now I'm just doing it day by day. Um, My family's helping me a lot and you know, um, helping me do things around the house and um, keeping me busy. (laughs) Can I ask how you kind of took it um, financially? A lot of us live and expect the next paycheck to come in. Can I ask how you've handled that? Um, Do you really have to budget? Um, A lot of um, Harry Shucker friends uh, help me out uh, by donating um, and you really got a budget because there's not another paycheck coming. Can I ask how you're, how you're handling it all? Just everything it's all at very once. Very rough. <laughs> it's still new. Um, but like Shane said, the world just still revolves. Everybody still lives their own life. Is there anything you'd like to say to the first responders that are on the call? Thank you for all that you do. Very brave. Can't appreciate you guys enough. Is there anything that you could say to anybody else that would help them make better decisions? Semi-trucks don't stop on a dime. Please be very aware of your surroundings. Um... Be very cautious because you don't know what the person in front of you is going to do. I'm going to ask you about one other person that was involved in that accident, and I'd like you to tell me the story about Blue. Okay. Blue is um, my husband's dog. She was involved in the accident. Um, An innocent bystander heard her barking in the semi-truck and let her out before the semi caught on fire. Um, she ran away. I um, talked to the Kansas uh, the Police Department. I told them that um, if they go back to the scene of the accident in two hours, she will be sitting there on the side of the road waiting for Harry. And that's where she was. And then... Um, Harry's boss went and got her from Kansas, from Parsons, Kansas, took her to the vet, made sure that she was okay because the police department didn't want to leave her in a kennel all night, so she went on ride-alongs and uh, stuff like that with the police department. And um, and then uh, uh, Shane uh, 
called uh, some friends of ours, and they met a friend of ours, Heath, met Harry's boss in Salina, Kansas, and brought her home to me. So we're going to put some pictures of Blue up on the website. I think that's kind of amazing that uh, Harry's best friend was able to make it home to you. I think it's uh, right, and she's she's doing very well. Um, she's you know has some PTSD from the accident. Um, her burns have healed. Um, she's starting to get into the routine of the house, so she's doing very well. Well, I want to thank you for talking to everybody today. I I know it's not an easy thing to do, but I'm really hoping that um, that everybody. Not only did they hear you, but they listened to you. And I hope so. And I hope. Well, one thing I can say about uh, truck drivers or anybody else out there, please, please make a will for your family because you don't want to go through what, I, what I'm going through with probate court and all this other stuff. So please, please get a will. You can find pictures of Blue doing well now back from Kansas to home in Wyoming via the September 16, 2019 post on the Channel 19 blog that also houses this podcast. And as owner-operator Vince Crisanti then wrapped up the call, I'd also encourage anyone out there who knows someone who's been through an injury or fatality crash to well keep in mind what Crisanti had to say. Quote, If you know anyone who's been involved in an accident and who needs help long after the lights are gone, Encourage them to reach out to a friend. Anyone who's ever lifted weights knows that heavy lifting needs a spotter. It's not a sign of weakness to ask for help. It can be a sign of great strength because you're handling more weight than most people. Thanks, Vince. That's a wrap today for Overdrive Radio. Find more from the TSG via truckingsolutiongroup.com. And until next time, stay pro out there.